If this is your first time, let me give you a brief synopsis of all of chapter 11. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, debate there, by the way, that's why I always qualify that in case you haven't picked up that by now. Um, The writer of Hebrews, perhaps Paul, perhaps, who knows, question mark, X factor. The guy who who wrote this, um, as he was writing it, begins the whole chapter with a basic description. It's not a definition, but a basic description of faith. And it is the evidence, or it is the, the firm belief, or it is the action, essentially, of what you do not see, but you are assured of as it goes towards the future. In other words, faith is a sense of confidence when you don't necessarily know the future. Faith is the conviction when you cannot see God, which is a cool understanding in and of itself, because this is oftentimes the thing that we wrestle with. I'm supposed to put action in something that I cannot see. I'm supposed to believe so deeply in something that I have never had the opportunity to see, to touch, to feel, and to hear audibly. And yet he says, exactly. Into the context of Hebrews, it was written to a church that was facing extraordinary persecution. It was, it was written to a church that in their timeline was all of a sudden as the thought of Christianity, the thought of Jesus was, a, was essentially at the beginning a little spin-off cult of Judaism began to grow and began to grow and began to grow and began to grow. And as it began to grow, it became a threat to the Roman Empire. And so Rome began to persecute this little movement called Christianity. And as it happened... Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who would be able to, who would have a tendency to shrink back from their faith as they faced the persecution from Rome. And so the writer stops and says, let me just give you a snapshot of some people, some men and some women of extraordinary faith. And he talks about the Abrahams and he talks about the Moseses and he talks about prophets of old and he talks about all kinds of folks who have done incredible things. And then he ends chapter 11 with some, some really challenging things. And he basically says, they all did this looking forward to the promise. In other words, all of these men and all these women of faith did this without ever actually having actualized the promise that there was gonna come a Messiah. You see, their understanding in the Old Testament was that there was going to come a Messiah. There was going to come one. There was going to come a Savior. And they did all of this, and the Savior never even stepped foot on planet Earth. But they had that much extraordinary trust in God. And he says, but, in verse 40, he has done something better for us. Which is really challenging. Because what that means is that we don't just simply have to look forward to the hope that God is going to do something at some point. We live in the wake of what God has done and look forward to eternity. They only had half of the equation that we have, which means we ought to have, we should have more faith than Abraham, more faith than Moses. We ought to have more faith than the prophets. We ought to have more faith than David. We ought to have more faith than all of the people in the Old Testament because we don't simply look forward to the promise. We do look forward to the promise of eternity, but we look back as Christians to the cross and to what God has done. So if you're like me and you hear that, you think, okay, well, great. That sounds unattainable. That's, you know, okay, I should trust, I should believe, I should trust, I should believe. Now, here's the the good news this morning. 
In chapter 12, verse 1, he turns a corner and basically begins the application for what he said in all of verse or chapter 11. So if you got your Bible, uh, my hope today is as we open up to chapter 12, this is a very, very, very applicable piece of faith. But here's what we're not going to find before we flip there. What we're not going to find is he's saying, just believe more, just hope more. What he's going to say are some very, very applicable, actionable, tangible things for us to do. So if you got your Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start off at verse 1. Therefore, he says, which everybody who has ever been to church for a long time says, whenever the Bible says, therefore, you got to know what it's. Look at you guys. I tell you what, church folk. Anyway, um, Therefore, now when he says therefore, this is kind of the the, the hinge point between what happened in all of uh, chapter 11, where he said, this person of faith, this person of faith, by faith, this person by faith, that person by faith, this person by faith, that person by faith, this person. And he says, therefore, in view of all of that which I just said, in view of all of those examples of faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now this is, gets a little bit misconstrued. Because what he's not saying is, it's like, and this is what I used to think back in the day, it's like there's this like, you know, this, this arena of, of like Moses and, and Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and, you know, whoever else is looking down from heaven like, oh my gosh, look at Ben, you know, I'm witnessing what he's doing. You know, it's like the LeBron witness thing, you know, where everybody's like, oh my gosh, I saw him give that sermon. Are you kidding me? No. What he's talking about is these people were all witnesses to God. These people were all witnesses to the glory of God. These people were all people who saw the future, who saw God, who understood that there is a promise coming. And they witnessed to that. Their lives lived witness to that. He says, man, we are surrounded by such a great cloud. Now, this was a a term that we don't currently use in this context. But in their context, um, oftentimes in the Greek and in the Latin, they would use this idea of cloud to say basically this This numerous and many cloud, this numerous and many group of people. In other words, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of folks who we are surrounded by as we think about men and women of faith, who have done some extraordinary things as they have witnessed to God. And since we have their example of how they integrated daily life into their faith, let us do this, is what he says. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us weigh, lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Now, there's three parts of this that I just want to spend a little bit of time on. In the middle, he says, let us you know, lay aside this sin that, that, that clings so closely. In, in, in the church world, this is where we spend the bulk of our time as we talk about you know, what holds us back from God. Now, here, here's what's fascinating. One of the greatest competitors to your faith is your sin. One of the greatest competitors to your faith is your sin. Now, here's what we want to think. One of the greatest competitors to my faith is my ability to believe more. One of the greatest competitors to my faith is my ability to trust more. But here's what you probably have found as you think back about, especially if you're a Christian, and especially if you've been a Christian for a while. Here's what you would probably say. The more personally sinful my life was, the more difficult it was for me to personally trust God. The more personally unholy I was, the more difficult it was to believe God or to trust God that what God said 
is right or real or true. You see, we think that sin just affects the relationship in terms of God's not happy with me, which isn't, couldn't be more true because God is ultimately happy with us because of Jesus on the cross. But he does say that, hey, the sin in your life will affect your level of faith because it clings to us as you're trying to run this race. Now, we talk a lot about sin, but I love the part that he says right before that. As he says, and so here's what I want you to do. I want you to lay aside every weight and sin. In other words, there are both weights and there's sin. In other words, not everything that keeps us back from God is sinful. Some of it is just weighty and keeps us back. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. Because I think that's so extraordinarily important. We live in a day and age that basically says if it's not sinful, it's okay. If it's not sinful, it's okay. Let me tell you, there are things holding all of us back from God that are not sinful. There are things holding every single one of us back from God that are not directly sinful, or you wouldn't read in Romans where it said, or 1 Corinthians where it said, or Philippians where it said. So let me give you a couple examples of things that I think about as I think about this. For some of us, there's relationships that aren't sinful, but they hold us back. And I don't just mean, you know, dating relationships. I'm, for some of us, there's friendships that are holding us back from God. For some of us, you have friends or you have perhaps coworkers that you know and you really can't do a ton about your coworker. You can't really do because they, they just work next to you. But you know that that person and their opinion of you is holding you back because for some reason when they say something, it just seems so accusatory. You have a difficult time living with and wrestling with that. Some of us, let's be honest. The thing keeping you from becoming the person that God has called you to be is there's a group of friends that are around you that have an assumption about who you are and you live into that assumption. And this is what, you know, Johnny thinks of me. This is what Karen thinks of me. And if your name's Johnny or Karen, then I apologize for you this morning. But, you know, you know, Karen said this and it's like, man, who cares what Karen said? The idea here is that you and I both have things. Let me tell you a couple of other things that I was thinking about. For some of us, It's our past. It's our past. We let our past weigh us down and drag us down from who God has called us to be in the future. You know in the past you were the type of person who struggled with this. You know in the past you were the type of person who didn't read their Bible consistently. You know in the past you were the type of person who didn't pray consistently. You know in the past you were this particular type of person. And as you walk into who God has called you to be, you have the past and you're dragging it along with you as you go and you walk. And it's a weight. You know that the Bible says that you are a new creation. That anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But our past holds us back. There's some interesting studies that are coming out now that talk about, I'm not like the anti-culture guy, but there's studies that say, hey, a lot of folks who minimize their use of social media are a lot happier. In fact, I've talked to some folks who's like, man, I got off Facebook, and I always think, okay, you're a loser when you say that, but whatever, we cool, we understand. It's like, you're like the person who says, oh, and I only listen to NPR. It's like, okay, neat. Um, But But there are folks who what you post and when you post and more so what you see other people post holds you back because all it does inside of you is makes you want to be that person and want their life and jealous of what they have. And and, and it spawns in you this sense of sinfulness, this sense of selfishness, this sense of enviousness. But it in and of itself is not sinful. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on all of those things. So I'm not like anti, you got to quit it. And, I, and after this, you know, we're going to have a big, you know, if this was, by the way, back when I was in, in, in high school and college, um, we didn't have all the forms of like technology. So we had CDs. And so when everybody would talk about like this thing that's holding you back, we'd have a big secular CD burning party. Anybody ever burn some secular CDs? I don't even know that they burn, but somehow, you know, we just all talk. Anyway, that's, that, that's not what I'm saying, but here, here's what I'm saying. For each one of us, there are things, there are weights that are not sinful, but as you analyze your life, they are holding you back from pursuing God. You see, he starts to draw this analogy that, that we are in a race, that we are competing, that we are going for, and that we're running. You see, as he says, let us wait, lay off this, this, this weight and these, this sin that so easily clings to us or ensnares us or entangles us. What I love about this is they're writing this at the time when people would race, they would literally get you know, butt naked and just start like running. And this was like the Olympic thing that they did. Now, thankfully, they don't do that at the Olympics anymore because that just get real, real awkward. But they, they would just run because they thought, I'm not going to have anything that weighs me down. This was his idea as he's writing these verses. He says, because, I love how it says this at the, at the tail end of this verse. We're going to spend the most time, by the way, this morning on this, on this verse one. In the sin, and this is how the, the ESV puts it, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He said, man, this weight in this sin, it clings to us. Now, here, here's what's fascinating. Here's what probably we've all experienced. You don't have to go look for sin. You don't go have, have to go look for weight to keep you back from God. It just finds you. Anybody have that sweater that's like you were hyped to get at first? Or, you know, I don't know if, if you're in like the sweater type. Maybe you got like a, a, fish, a fishing shirt. You know, I don't know what, what you got. But you got, you got something. You, know, you got this sweater. And then for some reason, this sweater has a disproportionate ability to attract every freaking thing in your house. You know? We live with a golden retriever, um, aka we have a dog. Not like she's our roommate, but kind of. And we, 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 so from time to time, you get like this, this sweater, you get this thing, and, and, and you have like 85 other pairs of clothes, and they're just kind of maintain its normalness and normalcy. But you have this one sweater, and it's like, good God, this thing is outrageously hairy. Like, like you put it in the washing machine, and it comes out dirtier and hairier because it got all the dirt from all the other clothes and all the hair from all the other clothes. And like lint, you don't even know that you have lint anymore, but this sweater finds it. This is what you should just turn into a cleaning rag, by the way. Um, but in this same way, it says sin in the way the things that entangle and ensnare us have the same property that they just kind of cling to us and the problem is is for us as christians we have a tendency to say okay i'm going to stop that and we make a declaration that we are no longer going to have this ensnare us and entangle us anymore but the problem is as with any with any clingy sweater you got to roll that thing off and you got to do a little like the tape and the ball and the thing that rolls up and down and they call it a lint roller but anyways you know the thing is, is you can't decide once, like, okay, man, I'm going to lint roll this sweater. I'm going to get every piece of dog hair off of it, and I'm never going to have any dog hair on this sweater again because I lint rolled it so well that one time. And that'll work for a day. And then you take it off, and you put it on your bed, and you didn't see any dog hair on your bed, but your, your sweater found it. And now you've got a dirty sweater again. Let me tell you why this is important. As Christians... We have to consistently be a group of people 
with lint rollers in our hand. We, we have to be a group of people that consistently are realizing that sin has this way of clinging itself to us, not to disassociate ourselves from the responsibility that we have, because sometimes we just go looking for it. But at the same time, we can't for once and for all finally decide that I am done with that thing. And God, and here's what we do in the Christian world, just to kind of give you a heads up. God, I am surrendering this to you. Because I'm at camp and I was on a mission trip or I was at a church service or I had a quiet time one night. And God, I'm just surrendering this to you. The things, here's what we all know. The things that you have surrendered, you have to constantly surrender. Because they just naturally have a way of gravitating and clinging towards you, whether you want to or not. And here's the hope on the other end of it. He says, so let us get rid, let us lay aside all these things that cling to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, here's the good news on the other side of that. It's not just that you don't have this sense of sinfulness. It's not that you don't have this sense of, of weight and this clinginess and this, you know, things that, that attach themselves to you. It's not that you just do that because you just want to be a better person. Here's the other side of it. That you and I have something God has actually called us to do. Stop. Every single person in here who, if you are a Christian, let me be very clear. God has given you a work to do. God has given you something to do. Every single person in here, you have been uniquely gifted and wired by your heavenly father. The way that you think is not an accident. The way that you move is not an accident. The gifts and the skills that you have, whether intellectual or physical, are not an accident. You have been gifted and wired by God to run a race. I love having conversations with folks that are trying to figure out how do I integrate my faith in my, my everyday life because it feels like if I'm ever going to do anything for God, I got to go and I got to join staff at a church somewhere or I got to go on a mission trip somewhere. Or I got to do something else somewhere else. God has given you a set of gifts and a platform. I think whatever it is that God has called you in the place that he has set you in the way that he has wired you, he has called you to do it probably right where you are. They use this example often, but, you know, we talk about Chick-fil-A because everybody's a Christian. So, you know, you know you're at the Chick-fil-A line, and you're, you're, you're just killing it in the Chick-fil-A line. Like, you're remembering, I mean, I'm going to give, like, like, they asked for, like, two Polynesian sauces. I'm giving them three because I'm saved. You know, you're like, man, how many napkins? Okay, let me give you, like, a little bit more napkins. Or, or, or you know, do you want cream and sugar in it? Yes. Okay, I'm not just going to put it in your bag. I'm going to put it in the coffee. I'm like, thank you, God, that someone is saved and just put cream and sugar in my coffee because I can't do it. Anyway. Here's the thing, is that you're killing it wherever you are. You're, you're in the banking industry, man, you just bank and bank and bank and bank and bank. Not like make bank, but you probably make bank too, but no matter what you do, you know, you are gifted and wired to do an extraordinary job of that. You're in law, man, you kill it in the law game. You're in fitness, man, you kill it in the fitness game. Whatever it is, God has created something to do, but it's not to glorify yourself into that. It's that you would do an extraordinary job in the race that God has set up for you, that you could glorify him in the process, that you are killing it in whatever area and arena that God has put you in, you would just be the most responsible, you would just be the most forward-thinking, you would be progressive, you would be proactive in whatever space and place God has you in. But the reason isn't so that you can just do this for yourself, it's so that you can do it for God. 
But sin in weight detracts and makes us do it for ourselves, which is not the race that God has for us. I dream of having people who are a part of our church, who are in government, who are nonprofit, who are teachers. I dream of having people at our church who are entrepreneurs and business owners. I dream of people in our church who are, who are, who are teaching in the universities, who are, who are practicing all kinds of law. That I mean, they're just doing such an extraordinary job and they are using their platform, their vocation to glorify God with it. And at the end of it, he says, so here's, here's the focus Looking to, or as some versions say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, and as, you, I mean, as you're taking this of all, as you're running this race, as you're in the area and the arena that God has called you to occupy, man, your focus the entire time is on Jesus. Your focus the entire time is on Jesus, who is the author, he wrote it, and the perfecter, he lived it. I love how he combines those two things together. He's saying, man, he wasn't just a God who talked about it. He wasn't just a God who designed it. He, this is a, a common people terms. So this is you and I. He was both the architect and the plumber. He had the design, he had the scape, he had the plans, he had the drawings, and he was the one in the weeds of the thing at the exact same time. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. And so let us keep our eyes on him. It's so important because, again, the reason, the reason we run the wrong race is because our eyes go to everything else. Our eyes go to that thing or to that thing or to that person or to that accolade or to that goal or to that type of a family or to that type of a company or to that type of a job. He said, no, 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 no. Your focus is on Jesus the exact same, the, the entire time. And God's called you to run a race. He's called you to live a vocation. He's called you to do something extraordinary for the kingdom of God. But your eyes are on Jesus He says, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And I love how he says that because the implication of it is that life isn't always going to be good. Jesus saw the goal of salvation. Jesus saw the goal of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus saw that God has sent him to planet earth for a purpose. And the purpose was that you and I are sinful and that you and I, because of our sinfulness, God and his holiness, we are just fundamentally incompatible. Well, Jesus not only authored it, but he perfected it when he came to planet earth. And in his perfection, died a death for the sacrifice of us that we can now have a relationship with him. He says, so let us fix our eyes on him because he saw the cross, that the cross was horrible. He saw it. And for the joy set before him, he endured, endured it. So that now he's seated at the right hand of God. And so verse three. Consider him who endured for sinners or from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
And inevitably of life, it's going to wear at you. And as you start to become a little bit tired, a little bit ragged from what happens, don't grow weary, he says. Consider Jesus. Have your focus, have your eyes set on Jesus the entire time. And I want you to, again, continually take this stuff off, continually take this stuff off, continually take this stuff off, and have your eyes focused on him. And he says, by the way, in case you're wondering how far your heavenly father went. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is intense. Many of you know, as we're, you know, in the next couple of weeks, going to be talking about the last few hours and day or so of Jesus' life. And Jesus, as he's praying in the garden, he, he, the cross was such a weighty thing that he was looking and he knew that he was going to be crucified. The stress level was so high that he begins to, instead of sweat, blood starts coming out of his pores. And he says, you haven't resisted that much. It's almost like he suffocates any excuse that we have. I, I, I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. I know, and if we were to sit down and we were to have coffee and you were going to tell me everything that's going on and the reason why and the weight that's holding you back and the things that are happening in your life and the relationship or the dynamic or the work or the whatever it is, and you were going to talk about this sin, this pattern, this habitual, and I know you said let go of your past, but let me tell you my past. I'd say, I know, I know, and I'd probably be understanding of it, and I'd say, you know what? I, I, I totally get it, but Paul just says, man, let me just tell you. You have not suffered yet to the point of shedding blood and just suffocates the excuses that we have. And here's what I appreciate about what Paul just said. As a next step in growing in our faith, what he didn't say was, well, there's not an answer for that question. So you just got to hope. So you just got to trust. So you just got to wish and you just got to think and positive vibes and hopefully you'll get there. He said, no, here's what I want you to do. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, I want you to, one, examine your life. A deep and a personal self-examination. And say, what weight is currently holding you back from pursuing God? What non-sinful thing, come on, think about it. What non-sinful thing is currently holding you back from pursuing God? On top of that, what explicitly sinful thing is currently holding you back from pursuing God, from growing in your faith, from growing in your trust in God, from going in your belief in God, and that corresponding trust and belief uh, in every way apply itself through action? And let's just baseline. Make sure we all have the same common goal. Because for all of us, again, I I said again, I haven't said this yet, but this is so important because the goal is Jesus. But for many of our goals, our goals become so many different things. And in a church that we all love Jesus, in a church that we all love God, in a church that we all have put belief, or many of us have placed belief in, in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can still have goals that aren't Jesus, that take the primary residence in our heart and in our life. Just a man, what's your end game 
Is your in-game Jesus or is your in-game comfort? Is your in-game Jesus or is your in-game success? Is your in-game Jesus or is your in-game acceptance? Is your in-game Jesus or what else on earth is your in-game? Because that has to be the goal to which we are running or else we are just running in vain because we're running towards a bad goal. Let me tell you one of my greatest fears in life is not that I didn't run hard because God has kind of given me a gift and a wiring to run hard. It's that I spend my life running hard towards the wrong thing. And I think that we as Christians oftentimes shift the focus of our goal. So if Jesus is your goal, then what's holding you back? If Jesus is your goal, what's holding you back? Because we serve a God who did not just design it, he lived it. He did not just write it, he became it. He did not just say it, but he lived it. And he lived it to a point that none of us have before. So I do not know what your excuse is, but whatever it is, Jesus suffocated it. Because he is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. So I don't know what the takeaway is for you specifically. But here's what I know. For some of us, we just need to reassess our goal. We just need to reassess where our eyes focused because we're running towards something. But if you're in here, you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian, perhaps what was at first Jesus has shifted to something else. Perhaps you're running towards Jesus but, but you're not running. You're just like the Olympic speed walker. You know what I mean? You're just hips out, you know? <laughs> anyway. But you just got some stuff holding you back. Let me, let me just tell you. You got some sentence holding you back. Let me, let me just tell you. That happens to all of us. That happens to every single one. In fact, it repetitively happens to all of us. So here's what I want you to do. As you go home, as we pray, you know, as we close out, you just get your lint roller out. Say, God, I know I've given you this five times before, 10 times before, 50 times before. And God, to be honest, this thing has this clinging property. I mean, it's going to continue to do this. So God, I'm just going to continue to get my lint roller out. And every time I see it, I'm going to give it to you. Every time I see it, I'm going to give it to you. Every time I realize this thing starting to attract itself to me and cling itself to me and weigh itself to me, I'm just going to continually give it over to you. And God, this isn't like a once I finally, and I declaratively give everything over to you. God, I every single day have to declaratively give everything over to you because weight and sin just clings to me. And I want to run for you with nothing holding me back. And let me tell you, if you do that, your trust, your belief, my trust and belief, our faith will grow perhaps like it has never grown before. As you get rid of the sin, as you get rid of the weight of the relationship, of the friendship, as you get rid of the, boy, perhaps, man, I just thought about this, sorry, just as, as a last point of application. Maybe for you, the weight in your life that's keeping you from God is the weight of busyness. 
I don't want to say that. That sucks. Man, I'm just, I'm super busy. So, you know, like, honestly, like, maybe that's the like, personal conviction that just happened. Like, man, maybe that's the weight. That it's just, you're just so busy. You need to figure out what that means to just separate. And have time, mental space to focus on God. For whatever it is for you. Apparently, we all know what it is for me now. But whatever it is for you, here's what I want you to do. Take that step of faith. Take that step of action. Take that step of trust. And if we all do that, we will become the men and women of faith, of extraordinary faith that we read about in the scriptures. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you that you're so patient and you're so kind and you're so loving towards us that you both are the author and the perfecter. You are both the architect and the plumber. God, you not only designed it and wrote it, you lived it and you perfected it. And you came and you died for sinful us who though we trust in you continually fall into patterns of sin, continually engage in things that weigh us down and hold us down from pursuing you, God. And so for whatever that is for each individual person in here, God, I pray that you would give us the ability to have the self-awareness that we would see those things in our life and not fully and finally once and for all hand them over to you, but develop a pattern in our life that we are consistently handing those over to you. And that our eyes would just be focused on you, Jesus. Our goal, our end game would only be to love and to serve and to glorify you and to make you known, Jesus. And whatever that means, whatever that looks like, we would become men and women of faith. Men and women of a conviction of that which we do not see of a firm standing in you. And that would become and transform us. And God, I pray for anybody in here who perhaps, you know, is here, they're wrestling with this idea of Jesus, they're wrestling with this idea of Christianity. God, I pray that you would put men and women of faith, men and women of such deep belief and conviction in you, God, that they would see perhaps for the first time or for the first time in a long time someone who actually lived what they believed and perhaps they would trust you more and believe in you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.